Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome. Over the next few weeks on the podcast, we're going to be delving into the world of motivation, figuring out where our get up and go comes from and how we can maximise our motivation to study. To kick off the series, I wanted to return and rebroadcast an episode uh, from nearly three years ago with Dr. Erica Patel. She was and still is widely considered one of the leading scientists studying motivation in classrooms and other educational settings. And she's certainly one of the most passionate and, and was incredibly fun to talk to, as well as being very on point with the research she shares and the practical takeaways she provided for us as listeners. So I thought it would be great to revisit that episode uh, to kick off this little series on motivation over the next few weeks. Because it was one of my earlier episodes, uh, I'd yet got to get my recording ops down to quite the extent I have now. And, and you'll notice the occasional little bit of mic brushing on shirt noise, which I hope you'll forgive, because the substance of what Erica has to say is extremely good. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Without further ado, let's welcome Erica and dive right in. My name's Erica Patel. I am an associate professor at the University of Southern California. Um, I'm a professor of both education and psychology, and I've spent my career studying student motivation and, and even more specifically, some of the things that teachers and students can do to help support their motivation. Just out of interest, what, what was it that first motivated you to get motivated about motivation? Oh, <laughs> uh, why, why, good... why, why, pick, why pick that field? Right, that's a good question. Um, I, and there's lots of answers to that. I think part of it was, you know, as a student myself, I felt like I was always kind of struggling with my own motivation. Like I could find external reasons for doing stuff, but not always internal reasons that I, I knew were important. And yet I sometimes struggled to find. Um, and also um, it was a, my father was a psychology professor and motivation was a topic he constantly talked about and actually did some research on himself. So it kind of just struck a chord with me to pursue that area. Picking up the family trade. <laughs> One of them, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I spotted that you teach a class at USC called uh, Breaking the Code of College Success. I, I wish I could come and take that class because it sounds, sounds fascinating. Um, I was just wondering if you had any particular sort of takeaways from that class uh, that you'd like to share. Sure. I love teaching that class, um, breaking the code of college success, because it's really explicit in its intention to give just time and space to students to reflect on how to support their own learning and motivation, um, and maybe that of other students or other people they know as well. And then we learn some educational psychology research on the way. But only so that we can help ourselves. Um, so what would I say are the key headlines? There's probably a lot of them, but I think I'd highlight two big ones. One is I am always routinely surprised to find that many of the students of the college students I have in my classes 
intuitively use some study strategies that really don't work that well for them. Um, So a lot of my students have elaborate highlighting routines or believe that simply just rereading material is going to just over and over again is going to is going to help them learn. And every time I teach that class, um, I find that one of the big takeaways for the students is that they need to use study strategies that involve testing themselves um, and constantly asking themselves questions in order to learn. So that would be one big thing that seems like the students come away with a eureka moment, like, oh, my God, if I want to actually learn, I have to ask myself questions all of the time. And then the second one is that I think that sometimes it's a revolution to students to recognize that they have a lot of agency in their role as a learner and that if they can control their perceptions of things, they can actually control their their whole experience and exert a lot of control over their outcomes as well. And, and we talk about that in a lot of different ways, mindset, interpretations of events, all kinds of things. I'm sure we're going to talk about that more later, but this idea that students have agencies and are not just passive learners is, is a really important takeaway for a lot of students. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to ask you a bit about your, your research uh, a little later on in the, in the podcast, but and as a kind of bridge to getting into that, what I thought might be quite fun to do is just take some of the motivation strategies I see students talk about or use in anger. And I'd just love your slightly more informed opinion on whether that's a good thing for us to be doing or not. Perhaps the most kind of common advice I hear is to kind of set yourself goals when you're studying. So know what you're aiming for. Uh, what's, what's your view on goal setting uh, for, for motivation? Definitely. Goals are helpful. They're critical. But there's always a but. Provided they are well-defined, somewhat challenging, and you can actually achieve them. And they're not totally outlandish. Setting ridiculous goals that you can't achieve is is probably going to demotivate you in the long run. And also setting too many goals that are competing with each other is is potentially going to have problems for your motivation. But if you pair well-defined, challenging, achievable goals with plans for actually implementing them, you're definitely doing yourself a favor. Cool, cool. I sometimes hear about the distinction between people making distinction between sort of process goals versus outcome goals, where your process goal is, I'm going to work for two hours a day, and my outcome goal is, I'm going to get an A on the test. Any thoughts on the merits of that distinction? You actually need both, I think. You need uh, you need something that you value, some higher goal that you value that you're going to be working towards, and that keeps you engaged in the process goals. And without the process goals, you don't really have a plan for how you're going to get to that um, higher level goal that you you actually value, right? So both are really critical. That's smart. That makes sense. Rewards and punishments also you know, incredibly popular and have all sorts of uh, implementations. You know, I, I sometimes see, particularly once they're at college or university, students using some kind of incredibly elaborate strategies to reward themselves or punish themselves to, to keep them on track. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of an app called Beeminder, which basically makes you pay fines if you miss your, I think, particularly your process goals. Thoughts about rewards and punishments then? 
rewards and punishments definitely work to get people to do stuff. There's there's really very little doubt of that. That doesn't mean that people feel good uh, about doing whatever they're rewarding and getting rewarded and punished for. Um, but if you have some kind of undesirable task that you can't find another way to motivate yourself um, to do it, rewards and punishment are, are, are definitely going to get you to do it. Or most of the time, if you find good ones, if you find rewards and punishers that are actually meaningful to you, that is, um, they will get you to do that activity you may hate, right? Um, I also think it's a pretty different psychological experience to be rewarding and punishing yourself. Presumably you're doing that because you value the goal, right? In the first place. Otherwise, why would you bother to exert those rewards and punishment on yourself? Um, so that's different than when, for example, the environment, your teacher, your parent, whoever is exerting the rewards and punishers. That becomes pretty controlling and can can off can sometimes backfire, though it gets people to do stuff. So I would just say it's kind of a it's a it's effective, but hopefully it's a last resort or a technique people use when they can't find another way to to find the internal motivation to do something. Yeah, so that idea it's possible to uh, affect your beliefs for the worse about how interested you are in something by subjecting yourself to too strong a punishment or a or reward. Um, sticking with that idea of beliefs, uh, the next one I had on my list was growth mindset. And that's the importance of uh, strategies like that in helping us overcome limiting beliefs, such as I'm not good enough, or I don't feel I'm good enough, or I'm talented enough to succeed. Um, so this actually relates to one of those key takeaways from my um, the class you mentioned earlier, breaking the code of college success. So mindsets, efficacy, beliefs, values. I would I would say those are all really critical sources of motivation um, and sources of of people's success and students' success in their coursework and, and beyond. Um, you said it well. If you don't have a mindset that emphasizes the importance of growth, that you're capable of learning, then your effort is going to suffer. And you'll experience, you're going to experience a self-fulfilling prophecy, essentially. Um, now, mindset is no panacea for performance challenges. Sometimes a task really is really hard and it takes a lot of learning and support to, you know, to get it. But challenges are near impossible to overcome without a mindset um, of being able to do something or being able to learn or, or believing something is worth pursuing. Um, if you don't have that mindset, then you're pretty unlikely to persist through challenges. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I suspect that maybe some of your when we come to talk about your your research, some of the the kind of takeaways from that might uh, perhaps speak a little bit to, to to the sorts of things we can do to encourage yeah en encourage constructive mindsets around around some of these things. The the final one I had was uh, the biggest takeaway I had from my own intuitions when I was a student, particularly in my my university days, which were that if I if I got one thing right, I almost didn't really need anything else in the motivational toolbox. And that one thing for me felt like it was getting into good habits, getting into a good routine. Uh, so I'd sort of wake up in the morning and 
I just knew what my schedule for the day was. I didn't have to make choices about it. It was just what I did right. by default almost. What's, uh, what's, what's your view of the roles of, of habits and routines in, in the mix? Yeah, developing habits, at least the good ones, right? The good ones that emphasize behaviors that you're actually trying to develop because you can also develop habits for things you wish you hadn't. Um, But developing habits are a great tool for learners. Um, Habits are great because they get around some of the problems associated with pursuing goals. So we forget to start things or we get easily distracted from doing things that are in pursuit of our goals and habits habits actually make our behavior more automatic kind of the way you described so that we just we just kind of we just do it right without much thought put into what we're doing but i would add the caveat that reflection and flexibility are equally important when you are relying on habits so specifically when our when our study routines seem not to be working, we have to be reflective enough to notice they're not working and flexible enough to make a change. So habits are great, but you've got to occasionally reflect and, and revise your habits. And that can be hard work. Check, it, check in with yourself. Is this working? And if not, then, uh, then do something to, to fix it. I'm just curious, was there anything you see your students doing to help motivate themselves, particularly that you think that's just a really bad idea. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one is hard to answer because I often think students have some idea of what's good for them and, and then they just kind of don't do it. Um, But I would say there's two, there's two myths I wish I could debunk or maybe just two practices that I wish I could debunk. I can think of one really quickly for teachers, and that would be for teachers, I know you didn't really ask me, but for teachers, I wish I could debunk the myth that a controlling or a strict teacher is equivalent to a competent teacher. So right. that one quickly. And then, but for students, I think the the practice or myth I wish I could debunk would be that um, social comparison is a good way to motivate oneself. I feel like students often rely a lot on social comparison to motivate themselves. And while that competition does motivate, I feel like there is a lot of psychological costs of using that strategy that maybe make it not worth it. That is so interesting. That is so interesting. And because that was a huge, I'd never really thought about this until you just said it just now, but that was a huge part of what motivated me at high school. And I did really well and I was the best in my school (laughs) Um, as a result. But when I got to university, I was nowhere near that. I was, you know, easily in the bottom half. And to start with, I, you know, I really struggled and perhaps I wouldn't have struggled quite so much both struggling academically, I'm struggling as in being a bit unhappy. (laughs) And maybe that wouldn't have been the case quite so much had I not had that as such a big part of my motivation at high school. Yeah. I think if we don't care for our own psychological well-being and um, feelings of confidence and security and self-worth as we pursue academic goals and any other goals for that matter, then we're going to struggle with many of our goals. So it's a careful balance students have to strike when they find the tools that get them to do the things they they believe are valuable. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's I think it's such a good point. I'd I'd love to come on and talk a little bit about your your own research. I know we've perhaps touched on one or two uh, ideas, but you know I I think I'd be right in sort of summarising a lot of your kind of thinking in in recent years as being around this idea of cultivating autonomy. Absolutely. What do we mean by autonomy, and and why is that so important? Yeah. So autonomy seems to be a really mysterious concept <laughs> to, to many people, at least that word. I don't think the, the actual concept is mysterious, but the word is, and there's a lot of different definitions that float around in, in both scholarship and like popular understanding. But when I talk about cultivating students' autonomy, I'm talking about cultivating a sense that whatever the student is doing they're doing it because they want to, because it is reflective of their sense of self, of their personal goals or their personal values in some way. Um, another way you could say it is um, you experience a sense of autonomy when you fully endorse your own behavior and it feels as if it's reflective of, of yourself, I see autonomy as an experience that everyone wants to have. That is, I see autonomy as a psychological need that people need to experience in order in order to thrive. Uh, we both want to experience autonomy, and we'll often do things so that we can have that experience of our behavior being self reflective and endorsing everything we're doing. Um, and then when when we have that experience of feeling autonomous, it's it's a resource for us. It powers our engagement, our well-being and uh, and our performance. Some of your work has been so helpful because it's it's synthesized a lot of other people's work and kind of boiled it down and, uh, you know, pulled out what the scientific community calls a meta-analysis where you look across lots and lots of other people's work and, and kind of pull it all together and say, okay, this is what this body of work is is telling us. So when it comes to, to autonomy, what are some of the messages that your meta-analyses have found out about autonomy? I've done a lot of work on choosing, and that's undoubtedly a really important and and effective strategy that teachers and parents for that matter can use um, to support their kids or their, their, their students' feelings of autonomy. But choice also has a lot of potential to backfire when it's not used properly. For example, when, you know, people can create choices that actually feel kind of controlling where, no, you know, the student doesn't really like either option or it doesn't really tap into um, their interests or their goals, or it's delivered in a kind of controlling way, or they don't feel they, you know, when students don't feel ready to make choices, like they don't already have some pre-existing levels of, you know, competence or ability with the tasks that they're being asked to make choices about, then it can sometimes backfire. But on the whole, choice is an effective strategy. And that was pretty clearly that that came out in meta-analyses I did. More recently, I and I'm not done with this meta-analysis. In fact, I'm I'm kind I'm revising it now because there's been a whole bunch of new work on autonomy supportive strategies in the classroom. 
in the, in like just in the last five years. And so I've started updating a meta-analysis I, I created a long time ago. Um, but this medicine, this meta-analysis that I'm now working on is intended to sort of decipher which practices that teachers use actually are most effective in supporting autonomy and other outcomes, engagement, performance, um, motivation. And what it comes down to based on that meta-analysis as well as a lot of the other work that I've reviewed over time and some of the work I've conducted myself is that there's just, there's a lot of things that teachers can do or parents for that matter, or friends actually for that matter, if you want to support your friend's autonomy, um, which is important to a good relationship. There's a lot of things that people can do, but whatever they do, it seems to all start with perspective taking. So to be an autonomy supportive teacher or parent or friend, you need to try to see things from the perspective of the student or your child or your friend. You need to be actively seeking out information from um, the student that helps you understand their perspective. It means being curious. It means being empathetic. Um, and then once you actually have some understanding of the student's perspective, you use that information to help the, the student experience autonomy. So you might design course activities that are based on what you know about the students in your class and their backgrounds or interests, or you give students choices like I mentioned earlier, choices of assignments so they can follow their personal interests or goals or preferred ways of working. It means you would give space in the class, not just to instruction of content, but a discussion about people's perspective about what's happening in the classroom, what you're studying and how. It means giving space for people to express their emotions and being empathetic to those emotions um, and really listening and collaborating with students to make decisions about activities and assignments. Um, I, I, one more, it's, it's a pretty long list. It means explaining the reasons for the choices as the instructor that you are making about the course or the assignments that um, tap students' perspectives, not just not just from the teacher's perspective, but you want to explain your why of what you're doing in the class from the student's perspective. Overall, it means being open, flexible, and collaborating with students. And when you respect students in that way, they feel autonomous and they and they thrive. Yeah, so that's, that's so interesting. I, I wanted to to ask a little bit about you know whether there's anything that students can do to, to help themselves. So is, is there anything else I, perhaps I can do as an individual in a classroom? Absolutely. Yeah, I often lament um, that, like I, I think I said this earlier, I'm just going to repeat myself in this podcast. That's <laughs> fine though. Um, yeah, I lament that many students can be somewhat passive in the classroom. Um, but when students actually recognize that they have agency over their own motivation and to some extent over the classroom environment, that is, they can change their own motivation and, su and the support they receive in the classroom, um, this can change their whole experience. Plus, provided students assert their agency in, in a collaborative rather than confrontational way with their instructors, they can also improve the teacher's experience in the classroom and their teacher's efficacy. So it's kind of a win-win. When students are agentic, they will they are also 
they are both likely to feel more motivated and, and, and likely to benefit their teachers with their agency. So I would challenge students to recognize when they're being passive and unengaged in their coursework. And this is the exact time to assert their agency and try to change their experience. So I would tell them, ask yourself whether it might help you to request that your instructor do something different or explain why something is important or provide choices or something else, and then actually make those requests. Seeing learning as a yeah, a two-way street, not just you're sitting there to be spoon-fed up. <laughs> yeah. More recent work suggests there may be a glint of truth in the phrase, pride comes before a fall. Uh, when you're proud of something, that can be associated with maybe working less hard uh, the following day. Tell us a little bit about that that piece of research. I like that research too. Um, that was work I did with one of my amazing graduate students, Injun Sio. Um, and we found by collecting some daily data from college students for for a few weeks that when students experience positive mo- emotions and pride in particular that led to coasting the next day that led to working less hard to pursue their goals the next day so basically feeling positive keeps you working on the task in the moment um you like it so you keep doing it and that's great because positive emotions can help you build resources and skills on the spot spot that that help you later on um and in the moment but positive emotions are also a cue that you can move on to pursuing some other goal, right? You're, you're mm. feeling good. So you must be doing good on that goal. So let's free up some resources for another goal that needs attention. You might think this means um, like con- kind of conversely, negative emotions would lead us to investing more the next day, but that's actually only kind of true. It really depends on if we have a lot of self-control or not and the exact type of negative emotion we're, we're experiencing while we're working on some goal. For example, feeling shame one day leads us actually to decrease our investment the next day rather than increase it if, if we're lacking in self-control. But yeah, a little bit counterintuitive that when you feel good the next day, you might work less hard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Um, Erica, what are the big questions you're working on now? Great question. So um, I am, uh, you know, I'm really obsessed with this idea that students recognizing their agency um, and, and developing a mindset that acknowledges that their motivation is malleable and the classroom environment um, and the support they get is malleable and responsive to their, you know, agentic behavior, their, their attempts to assert themselves. I, I want to find a way to help students as that idea so that they more readily leave behind that tendency to be passive in, in the classroom and assert their agency. So I'm, I've been working lately on interventions that can help students adopt that mindset and also um, think about the behaviors, not think, not just think, but practice the behaviors in the classroom that are about asserting their agency and trying to discover how effective an intervention like that would be. So that's my latest work. 
we've been testing that with college students now, and and we want to see if we can develop a version of an intervention like that for high school students as well. Really interesting. A- any kind of clues about what what those interventions might might look like? What sort of uh, what sort of things are you are you looking at? Yeah, they so they look very similar to to the mindset interventions that um, you mentioned early on in this in this podcast. Um, so the mindset interventions typically communicate with articles that include research and professional opinions and testimonies from other students who have tried adopting the belief and seeing how it works for them, just the effectiveness of adopting this perspective that motivation is, in my case, motivation is malleable and the classroom environment is malleable. So we we do that. We present evidence to students um, demonstrating that having that belief can be helpful and being agentic actually does change people's motivation and experience in the classroom and their teacher's behavior because it, it really does um, and give them testimonies. And um, most importantly, probably the way our intervention is differing from mindset interventions is that we're also trying to give them um, very specific behaviors to practice in the classroom and asking them to generate their own ideas for ways they could be agentic in the classroom so that they can improve their own motivation. Uh, We've also toyed around the ideas of like daily or not necessarily daily, but regular reminders for students in text messages or creating an app that would help remind people of behaviors they could use to be agentic. Um, in their classroom. So in a nutshell, that's what it looks, that's what it seems like it looks like right now. We're having, so far we've done, we've tried it out with college students three times and it seems like our, we're able to shift people's mindsets along agency and that when they do adopt this more agentic mindset and orientation, their engagement in class increases and their interest in class um, increases. So promising. Really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, can, can I just ask one, one tiny footnote question just to, just to bring it to life? What, what sort of things go into those text messages? What sort of bits of advice do you give about mindset and, and being, being your own agent in the classroom? Right. Um, so they, uh, well, first of all, we haven't tried the text messages yet with college students. We want, we, we, it occurred to us when we were working with high school students or starting to work with high school students that they needed smaller chunks of information and more regular reminders. So we're not sure, you know, if the text messages and reminders actually help, but we anticipate they do. And sure, we're, sure. <laughs> right. But what they, what would, what they would include is, you know, one, just reminders of what they learned, like, hey, do you remember that we mentioned that when you ask a question in class or ask your teacher to explain why they, you know, why you're working on this particular activity or from their perspective, why this is useful or important, um, that that will actually change how interested you feel in class and you know, how supportive your teacher is of your motivation in class. So first, we just remind them of things they already learned, but also we give them very specific practices like, hey, today, 
try when you get bored asking your teacher one of those exact things. Explain why the particular activity is uh, how it's used in the real world or how you might personally use it in your daily life to try to find why this is valuable today. Um, and other behaviors that we, you know, for specific things we just throw out for them to try that day. That's that's so interesting and, and so interesting to sort of hear some of this, the, the absolute specifics as well. Uh, Erica, I, I, I always finish with uh, what I sometimes call our, our time machine question. So if you were able to, to go back in time and, and bump into your yourself, perhaps back in your high school days, and uh, give that young young teenage Erica uh, a, a bit of advice about uh, the, the future based on what you've learned since then. You mentioned that you were struggling with motivation, for example, back then. What would be the advice you might you might want to give? I would give myself the same advice I am giving other students right now. So I would tell myself to leave behind that tendency to be a passive learner. I'm not now, but I was then when I was a teenager and invest in shaping my learning opportunities to actually suit suit my needs. Amen to that. <laughs> um, Erica, uh, where can people uh, perhaps learn a little bit more about your work if they're interested and, and certainly follow what you're up to? Yeah, you can find out what I'm up to and what my students are up to at motivationlab.wordpress.com. Well, thanks again, Erica, for such a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and are feeling uh, awash with some fresh motivational strategies uh, to help you stay consistent in your studies. Thanks so much for listening today. It's been great to have your company as always, and I just want to wish you every success in your studies. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.